0: Blog
1: Talk Radio. Hello everyone and welcome. This is Revolution with Hi-C. We're starting to show off a little bit differently here for the moment because we just have a couple of little technical issues to resolve in terms of getting some uh, things uploaded as well as some people connected. So while we do that, I'll just give you a little glimpse into what the show holds for us today. Of course, we will have our regular segments, our astrology update segment for the month, um, which will give us some insights and guidance as to what kind of energies are going on and how to best work with those and deal with those uh, throughout the month. Um, We will have our regular Living Well with Linda Wiley segment. And she's going to be offering us some insights into how we can best live our lives as fully, richly, and healthily as possible. Uh, And, of course, uh, the latter portion of the show will offer us the opportunity, well, will offer you the opportunity, actually, to call in and receive... readings live on the air. If you would like to do that, you can Skype in from the show page and you can call 646-716-5510. Either of those methods would allow you the opportunity to get into the queue and receive a reading live on the air a little bit later in the show. Uh, I'm also very uh, excited because our roundtable topic which will be coming up momentarily once I get everything connected in and everyone connected in here um, is on the topic of myths and mythology uh, and I think that you'll find that a, an interesting discussion to kind of stimulate your thinking around what you think about myths what they mean to you how you might use them in your life if you've ever even given that a thought and maybe stimulate your thought process as to how a myth or mythology could actually a role in your life or have something to say to you. Uh, so I would encourage you to start thinking about that, and then maybe the discussion will also spur some additional thought processes for you. Uh, now, related to that, I'm very excited about the two guests that we have coming up today. Uh, it's a doubleheader with our guests, and one of our guests is an author, uh, K.D. Keenan, who's just released her first novel, The Obsidian Mirror, and it's the first in a uh, series of novels that she has begun. And the interesting thing about her novel is it's called Urban Fantasy, which means it's a fantasy novel that takes place in modern day. And it is set in Silicon Valley. And the difference that she has taken is that most fantasy novels tend to be kind of the sword and sorcery things. Um, They oftentimes are in a European setting. uh, And, you know, I think we're very familiar with things like the trolls and the the dragons and the the wizards and all of those kind of things. Um, But what she has done is she actually has much more of an interest in Native American and... um, South American mythologies, Mayan, Aztec, that kind of thing. So she decided to use that and set her novel uh, in modern day, but using those aspects um, and and those mythologies and cultures for her basis instead of what we normally find in a lot of the fantasy uh, literature. So, uh, And then joining us as well will be Uh, Megan Cain, who is an archaeologist, and so we're going to be able to hear both sides of the the spectrum, if you will. We're going to hear the the creative aspect and approach that was taken using and jumping off from those mythologies and cultures, and then also we will be hearing some of the archaeological and anthropological uh, background and information that also informs those as well. So I think we're going to have a very interesting show. And again, if you would like to receive a reading live on the air, then I would encourage you to Skype in or call 646-716-5510 and that will get you into the queue. So it does look like we now have everybody all um, all dialed in and connected to the studio uh, to kick the show off with our round table. So sit back, enjoy, and Follow us into a world of myths and sorcery.
0: Firefly Willows Live presents Revolution, featuring your host, Hi C.
1: Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us this morning. I'm Hi-C, and you are listening to Revolution, and I am joined for our roundtable discussion that always kicks off each show by my co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald.
2: Good morning.
1: And John Carasella. Good morning. And the topic that I thought we might discuss today, that we might roundtable today, um, actually, I thought of because it ties into my guests for the show uh, coming up later. Is author uh, K.D. Keenan and archaeologist Megan Kane. And K.D. Keenan has written a novel that is based on Mayan and Native American mythology. Uh, Megan Kane is an archaeologist whose specialty is in that area and realm. And so I thought that it might be interesting for us just to talk about mythology in a more general sense. Um, And my first question to my esteemed colleagues is for you to think about what role myths play for you in your life in some way, Uh, whether it's myths that you have generated for yourself, whether it's referring back to old myths in one or more spiritual traditions, but what role do you feel that myths have or myths play in your life for you today
3: for me I use myths as a, a tool for helping to explore the reality around me um, I, I often find that as I'm walking in nature or encountering some kind of some kind of circumstance and it, usually it's with a with a, you know my spirit open and you know my heart open with spiritual intent there's there's something that triggers in my uh, perception a story. And I often find that I'm, I, I fall into a story that is some kind, of, uh, some kind of a myth that reveals some kind of an archetype or something. And I think it's because these things, myths and archetypes, represent big movements of energy across time. And so those energy movements, those waves, or those flows are still there, and so I think we can encounter them and I think myth the the stories that have been told in myth are ways of understanding and feeling into the contours of those of those energy grooves or those waves
1: and when you refer to myths like when you're walking in nature, are these what, what, what does myth mean to you? are these myths that are you know, from other traditions that you've read or heard, or are these myths that are just spontaneously generating for you?
3: Well, I think my experience is that they're both. Um, I I get things like, like I was down at the ocean, and I was experiencing what emerged in my awareness was that I was experiencing contact with Poseidon. Now, I wasn't experiencing Poseidon as as an anthropomorphic, man God, who was controlling the sea, but I was experiencing the energy of the sun as it created motion and movement in the ocean, and I was contemplating and reflecting on that movement and that motion, and I thought, what is making this happen? you know I, I sort of concocted uh, or it was revealed to me either way uh, that all of that all of the sun's energy that flows into the ocean directly from the sky if i were to collect all of that all of that energy and and give it a personality give it give it a characteristic uh role anthropomorphize it in a sense that would be poseidon so i i use the myth of poseidon and the science of the sun being absorbed by the ocean and creating wave motion and so on and so forth to bring together an experience that was happening in my life that helped guide me and helped me actually help me not only understand the ocean but understand the peoples who used Poseidon as a descriptor for the ocean's motion and movement.
1: And isn't that really what myths are? Is it's human's way of understanding things that are far bigger and perhaps seem far more incomprehensible than themselves. So we may anthropomorphize the ocean as the god Poseidon, but it's not because we're taking away from the bigger essence of the ocean and that kind of thing. It's just the human's brain's way of grasping or trying to understand that grandness. Yeah, I think it's a way
3: of relating that is uh, highly compatible with, with the human as uh as a social and psychological organism right and so i think i think that is what we do is we take these things that are very large and inscrutable in some ways because they're they're alien in some ways right they're you know the ocean and the and the energy that moves the ocean is not a human thing but but we want to relate to it in some way we want to come to understand it in some way and so if we can cast it as a story about a uh, human-like being, then we can understand and, and perhaps get some, get some perhaps get some understanding about its characteristics, its personalities, and maybe that serves us in some way as a as a practical matter. It certainly serves us uh, in a soulful way.
1: And then, of course, we run into the, the danger of taking myths too literally. Um, yes. and and starting to think that they somehow can't be changed or that they are the ultimate truth of something rather than being able to see that symbolic and that bigger aspect to them. Um, yeah. And what about you, Mildred? Do you feel that myths play any sort of a role in your life in some way?
2: They do. They help me understand and they stretch me. So I I could come up against a situation or be in a situation and I don't, Mildred doesn't really understand what's going on or would like to understand in a better way, so I might go to a myth or a fairy tale or a folklore story, because they all kind of come in under the same umbrella, to give me a context and when I acquaint myself with the story that's going on. I'm able to put myself in the situation and a lot of the times it gives me a, a new perspective or an answer or as John was saying, provide some guidance. So I find them very useful. And I I think they also provide a a quick context, like David and Goliath. Well, everybody kind of knows that story. So it's an automatic point of reference if you're trying to communicate to other people, maybe feelings. And that would be the second point. I find myths sometimes are able to help you not feel alone with your feelings or incorporate what you're feeling in a new perspective that makes sense, that helps you move forward.
1: And you used an interesting word there, so I'm just going to ask both of you what your thought on this is. What do you think is the difference between a story and a myth, if you think there is any?
3: For me, a myth typically maps onto, as I described, these larger um, extant energy grooves or energy flows. I mean, they, they tie to aspects of human experience that have been ongoing for a very long time. Uh, And so the individual nuance that might occur in a, in a story, for example, is, is, is not what a myth is about. The myth is, the myth is not about the details that make a particular story endearing or engaging. The myth, a myth is about the, the larger forces that shape and sculpt the human experience. A story is is fun because it's, it's a mystery unfolding, right? And every story is different and has its different twists and turns and things like that. And, you know, stories can be, can be emotive, right? They can, they can draw your emotions forward. They can be tragic. They can be comic. They can be um, all kinds of things. Um, but for me, the distinction between a story and a myth is that a myth maps onto some larger flow of human experience?
2: I find that the myth, the story, the fairy tale, the folklore, all seem to be used interchangeably these days. So it's like the word nutrition. It's almost a commodity. So I don't know for practical purposes if I used a fairy tale or a myth or folklore or a story. If I use them interchangeably, I I don't think anybody is going to not understand what I'm saying. Although with the myth, usually taps into something
4: eternal.
1: Yeah, that, that would work for me as well. Yeah. Are there any particular myths or traditions of myths or cultures that you are drawn to or that you find yourself always kind of going back to when you want to do some of that exploration or you're trying to... Make an understanding of something, and you always feel as if that particular myth, or cultures' myths, or traditions' myths, tend to really resonate for you.
2: I say I find myself animal totems, uh, specifically Cherokee animal totems, really work for me, and have I'd say for the last seven or eight years. That would that would be my go to area.
3: And for me, uh, I think I think I get more um I have more touch points with with the elements. You know, stories about the rain, um, stories about the ocean, stories about the interplay between the moon and and the ocean, uh, stories about the wind. You know, those are things that somehow because I experience them physically, you know, when I'm outside and they just seem to they seem to do, have relevance to my life in certain ways that uh, draw my attention,
2: and I see there's always urban myths for comedy and shock value and entertainment.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and and those are new. Those are those yeah. are uh, they're interesting because they take on a, a mythological cast, uh, and yet they're they're not eternal in some way. They're just they they their subject matter is can only exist in the presence of urbanization.
1: Well, and that brings up a question I was going to ask is, do you think that there are any new myths or any new mythologies that we are creating today? Because we always hear about people, you know, referring back to old myths, you know, like this, this myth of Poseidon in Greece or this myth of ISIS in Egypt or this myth of Odin in the Norse world. Uh, so do, do you think that there are any new myths or mythologies, things that you would really, not, not just things you would think about as stories, but things that seem to have that more mythological scope to them? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah,
3: absolutely. Alligators in the sewers of New York City, right? You flush an alligator, a baby alligator down the toilet, and now in the bowels of the city lurk these monstrous creatures that could eat you in a moment's notice. So,
1: so what's, the, what's the bigger aspect or the, the soulful aspect or that, that grander aspect that makes a myth a myth? What, where is that in that kind Because of, I know we use the word like urban myth, but are they really myths or are they just stories?
3: Some of them are, some of them are, a lot of them are stories, but some of them are myths. I think, I think the story of, of alligators in the sewers of New York City is, uh, taps into a mythological, uh, fear. Fear? (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Like, like, like the monsters of the deep, right? Something is happening below, uh, below our conscious awareness and below our, our, uh, level of living that, that could be monstrous and certainly is dark and, Unfathomable uh, and dangerous. That's a that's a mythological experience. That's a, that's part of the human experience since forever.
2: And Heise, you were you were also asking about well, you were asking about today. I would offer that the characters of Star Trek could be viewed as mythological characters or archetypes exploring the for exploring the unknown.
1: I I would agree with that. I also think Star Wars, Mm. um, because one, Star Wars really plays off of very, very clear archetypes, but also has become very ingrained in the consciousness of people. And, you know, so like a lot of times, like when we say urban myth, I think nowadays the word myth is used to refer to something that isn't true or may or may not be true. Now my my phrase for that is myths may not be true but they are real. Do you consider myths whether new or old to be stories of what was real?
3: Uh, for me uh, if it's if it's a myth it's because it taps into something that is a deep running truth about the human experience. So yeah, myths are definitely real from that perspective, absolutely.
2: I agree with John. I think they touch something and that's why they're self self-perpetuating. They they stick around. They have sticking power.
1: That's why I always describe them as being true even if they aren't necessarily real.
3: Oh, so well okay, so true, but true but maybe not real. That I would
1: yeah, that's how I would say it. So as a a final question, what do you feel is your myth or mythology that you are leaving on the world? Wow, that's a good question. Um, Which if we go back to the definition I just gave, it's also like saying what is the myth, what is the truth that you are leaving on the world that would be the story people could tell of you that somehow relates or reveals some greater truth, greater aspect. As
2: yet to be written?
1: Yeah,
4: (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Well, Well, but,
1: but if we use that phrase, then the question becomes, okay, but when? Because if we're always saying as yet to be written, it's always something that's going to happen but has never occurred. So we would also have to wonder then, so when are we going to write that myth of our lives?
2: Probably next year.
3: I would say, you know, at at least for the moment, part of the, part of the myth that I'm living is the myth of Odin as the wanderer. I'm doing, I'm doing a little wandering. I think in some way, uh, the way Odin did in the myths of the Norse, he went out among the people and um, amongst the land and, watched and gathered and thought, and I don't know what else, but that part, I guess, will be revealed.
4: (laughs) Well,
1: and that's an interesting idea, too, is to consciously relive a myth in our own life or in this time by referring back to it, but then reliving it now instead of it just being something we tell of what happened back then. Yeah,
3: and that's that is kind of how I feel
1: that about about Odin as a wanderer. I feel a little
3: bit like I'm walking in his footsteps.
1: But I think that's an important component of myth. I think a myth goes beyond being a story when it's something that we feel is always being lived or is always happening and unfolding, rather than is a self-contained narrative of a particular time.
2: For me, I I feel I'm into the archetype or myth of the hermit at the moment or what I understand of a hermit.
1: Have you explored any particular myths of hermits or are you just using more of that idea of the archetype of the hermit?
2: More of the archetype of the hermit and giving myself permission to be okay with that and understanding that that's part of the human condition at this point in time, the eternal hermit.
1: I would like to thank my co-hosts for having been willing to venture off into the realms of myths for a bit of discussion. I would encourage people who are listening to perhaps think about what myths resonate for them, how you perhaps If they're resonating for us, they're often doing so for a purpose. So you may consider how you can perhaps start to consciously live that myth in your life today rather than just something that you read about. And I would also encourage everyone to consider what myth are we leaving behind or what myths are we leaving on the world as we move through our lives um, every day. So thank you to Mildred Lynn McDonald.
2: You're welcome.
1: And to John Carasella. Always a pleasure. My Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. co-hosts for joining this roundtable discussion. I will remind people that if you would like to get a reading a a bit later in the show, you can do so by Skyping in from the show page or you can call 646-716-5510. And stay tuned, because coming up we have our monthly astrology update, plus I will be going into conversation with my guests for this month, author K.D. Keenan, who wrote the novel The Obsidian Mirror, and archaeologist Megan Kane, as well as our Living Well segment with Linda Wiley, and then of course our opportunity for you to get a reading live on air during the show. So stay tuned for that, and we will be right back. for Men Who Love Men will be held October 3rd to the 6th, 2014 at a private healing center in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Sponsored by the Brothers of the Unnamed Path, this event will consist of workshops and presentations focused on creating social change and healing through the lens of magic and brotherhood. Come and share your energy and love with your presence. Presentation slots are still available for those interested. More information on this exciting weekend gathering can be found at www.stoneandstang.com. Blessed be.
5: Lovelies, this is Tino Kalenda, your queer astrologer, with yet another monthly astrology update. (laughs) Greetings, cosmonauts, welcome to August, and welcome to Space Time Distortion. And first, a slightly strange philosophical musing to get the ball rolling. There is a peculiar phenomenon which occurs all the time in our universe and in our experience as living beings on a planet. It is the instances when two seemingly contradictory occurrences can exist in the same space-time envelope. It is officially called spatial-temporal dissonance, and yet at the same time it occurs with a with a high degree of frequency. Two completely contradictory events occurring at the same time in the same place. The month of August, in the astrological sense, is shaping up to demonstrate this phenomenon right down to its atoms. To indicate what I mean by that, take, for instance, that this month will show a configuration in the sky where two conjunctions will occur with very contradictory outcomes. The first occurs four days prior to the second and involves what in astrology are called the two malefics, which are the two planets said to be challenging. In this case, it is Mars and Saturn who will be fusing in the social sign of Libra, respectively. This conjunction is alleged to result on the dark side in an attitude of stubbornness, a propensity for violent events, obstinacy, obsession, and vengeance. The additional factor to consider is that it occurs in the air sign Libra. There are a great many things that fall under the purview of Libra, including computers, communications, and technology, including the Internet, justice, courts, the legal system, diplomacy and related institutions, social agreements, collective decision-making, issues of social, environmental, and economic justice, fairness, tolerance, democracy, equality, beauty, and harmony all fall under the sign as well. In fact, it symbolizes civilization itself and the agreements we make collectively to make a shared liberty possible, to make it pleasant to live in groups, to ensure that we do not have our personal freedoms eroded by the tyranny of the mob mentality. In essence, we can potentially expect to see many of these events many of these events related to this conjunction played out on the world stage this seems fairly appropriate given that we are seeing continuing tensions all across the world currently the middle east is of course blowing up right now with israel being at the epicenter of the tangle Continuing tension in Ukraine, reflective of the the Pluto-Uranus square, continues to escalate, and finally, the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Liberia is potentially threatening the ability to contain it. These events do correlate with many of the intense astrological configurations we've seen over the last few months, and it can be suggested that these issues may escalate and intensify if critical tipping points are reached. That said, there is a silver lining in that this tense aspect does have a bright side. It can also lead to firmness, ambition, perseverance, fortitude, and resilience, qualities that could play out in one of two ways. It could lead to intensification of existing disturbances by making the players in those situations more resistant and obstinate, creating a gung-ho attitude ensuring that neither side backs down and comes to compromise although this seems unlikely given that Libra is diplomatic and does find a way to come to some accord or at least a detente or ceasefire order. Encouragingly, it seems on the epidemic front that the latter may be winning out as the affected countries are currently considering escalating their efforts through a possible quarantine and other health authorities are stepping up their surveillance efforts. If this concerted effort continues, then the brighter sides of the malefic conjunction will become apparent. Just to let you all know, the malefic conjunction will be starting August 6th, and it lasts until the end of the month. So August 31st, it goes; it starts to fall out of an orb for a conjunction. Existing in simultaneity with the malefic conjunction is the benefic conjunction, which occurs four days after the malefic conjunction, so starting August 10th, and in this case involves the planets Venus and Jupiter conjuncting one another in the sign Cancer. This puts a deeply personal spin on this much softer conjunction. Cancer concerns itself with three functions, securing a rich habitat to thrive in and creating the perimeters that define that environment, nurturing life in its developmental stages, And finally, it represents instincts and the desire to feed our hungers. It could play out with many of us individually insulating ourselves over the course of the next fortnight from the chaos of the world all around us and being more sensitive than usual. We are wise to choose our actions and words very carefully as we do not know how profoundly they could both heal or wound others we care about. There may be an increased desire to pull a wall of protection around ourselves and those we love to create a safe perimeter where it is warm and abundant and we can nourish self and beloved others. Cancer rarely ever attacks when threatened, but instead becomes defensive and retreats. It only attacks when its boundaries are violated and then the claws will clamp and pinch. Provided we afford ourselves safe spaces, we can activate the better qualities of this fusion. The overall energy is one of chance, opportunity, optimism, and benevolence, and achieving a positive outlook even in a world of transient violence and confusion is a feat in resilience and is exactly the objective to aim for. There is no sugarcoating reality. It can be a scary place but the nest we build within can often create a secure place from which we can meet the challenges of a dynamic world. The month finishes out on a more innovative tone as Uranus, the planet of revolutions and upheavals, forms aspect with Mercury, Venus, Sun, and Jupiter throughout the month. Softening the edges of the world in crisis is the Uranus-Venus sextile, which will be occurring August 1st through August 6th. This naturally lends itself to an energy of multiculturalism found in the Uranus and Pisces desire to unite with humanity in a deeply spiritual connection and the Venusian desire to connect further infused by the Uranian acceptance of diversity and uniqueness. It is a feeling of being willing to accept people from all walks of life and finding great joy and fulfillment in connecting to a foreign other. It is a celebration of otherness that could help to solve some of the more difficult relationships occurring now. Tolerance seems to be the name of the game, and further, an acceptance that all need the space to develop and that everything will unfold in due time. A Uranus trying to Mercury, both in water signs, could find the world in each of us being open to innovative and surprising fresh ideas and approaches to seemingly insoluble problems. It could open a door, provided we choose it to, to new approaches to diplomatic tensions and highlighting a strong technical bent, could facilitate our communication technologies as being part of the solution." the Internet and social media platforms could at least be places for many of us to have meaningful dialogue on these issues and work through the thornier aspects. It seems the symbolic movements of the planets is opening to that possibility. Just to let you all know, the Uranus Uranus trine Mercury will be occurring from August 9th through the 12th. Uranus then makes trine aspect to Jupiter, touching off the benefic conjunction and infusing the transit with an inventive edge. Perhaps we are inspired to create homes that are unusual and safe spaces that welcome in a motley crew of disparate people seemingly with little common ground to come into affinity with one another and work through their differences, creating a safe cultural space for all to express their unique diversities. Be sure to be watching the skies on the dates of August 9th through the 12th to take advantage of those trines as well. It all finishes beautifully with a Uranus-Sun trine. Solar Uranus pairings often bring out a desire for autonomy and freedom of expression and our powerful aspects. Touching off this month's energy, this final aspect could see those of us attuned to it expressing our feelings in unusual and deeply creative ways. Uh, Bizarre and yet invigorating artistic constructions could emerge from unexpected muses or there could be revolutionary approaches to everyday living. Perhaps the domestic routines get turned on their head, creating a unique and deeply satisfying new rhythm that falls into a dynamic equilibrium with a fluctuating world. To take advantage of the Uranus sun trine, be attuned starting August 9th, and that will be lasting until the 19th. Well, all right, Psychonauts, that wraps up another Transmission from the Cosmos. I will see you all next month.
4: And now If
5: you are curious or have more questions and would like to consult with me, I am available for con- consultation. You can be sure to check out my blog, which is flyingpunkrockunicorn.wordpress.com. I'm also available via email at kalenda.tino at gmail.com. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A dot T-I-N-O at gmail.com and keep watching the skies.
0: listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Highsea. Enjoy the show.
4: And now-
1: Thanks to Tino Calenda for, once again, his insight, wisdom, and guidance with his astrology update for this month. I will remind you that if you'd like to get a reading a little bit later in the show, you can get into the queue by Skyping in from the show page or calling 646-716-5510. We'll be back right after this.
0: A personal Tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional Tarot conversationalist and ritualist. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal Tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhic.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com.
4: Here comes the sun do-do-do-do. Here comes the sun I say it's alright
1: mm-hmm. Today we are not enjoying one but two esteemed revolutionary guests Our first is Katie Keenan, who is a writer living in Northern California. She has worked in the high-tech industries since 1978 as a writer, content creator, and public relations expert. She founded her own PR agency in 1986, which was named one of Silicon Valley's top 25 PR agencies for 10 years running by the Silicon Valley Business Journal. She currently works as a freelance content developer and social media expert. Katie Keenan has always been a voracious reader. Having worked her way through her grandparents' extensive library of Victorian children's literature, she began reading fantasy and science fiction at the age of nine, a move that curbed her tendency to write with a mid-19th century flair that was greatly underappreciated by her English teachers. Katie Keenan began writing her latest novel, The Obsidian Mirror, because she had just finished reading another sword and sorcery fantasy set in an archetypal European pre-industrial age society where the heroes wore cloaks and the world was populated by elves, trolls, and assorted other Euro trash. Having hit a downturn in her freelance work at the time, she decided to write a fantasy novel based on New World prototypes stemming from an interest in Native American folklore that began with her mother, an archaeologist specializing in southwestern Indian civilizations. To her surprise, Keenan actually finished the novel. She is currently mulling over the next novel in the series that begins with The Obsidian Mirror. Our second revolutionary guest joining author Katie Keenan today is archaeologist Megan Kane. Megan is an archaeologist currently working as a collections manager at Stanford University, overseeing a collection of historical artifacts from a local archaeological site. She has worked on excavations in Italy, Peru, and California, and has analyzed and cared for artifacts from sites around the world. As a student in archaeology and anthropology at Stanford, Megan extensively studied the sites, cultures, and history of Central and South America. So please help me welcome to the show today, revolutionary guests, author K.D. Keenan and archaeologist Megan Keynes. And welcome to the show, Kathy Keenan and Megan Kane.
6: Thank you.
4: Glad to be here. Hello.
1: <laughs> and you probably good didn't realize. <laughs> you probably didn't realize that nobody cares about sports anymore, as you heard from that enthusiastic response and applause. All they care about now is fiction, literature, and archaeology.
6: It's a good trend.
1: I think so too.
6: It's time. hope for the future of the world.
4: Absolutely.
1: Yes. I I just say it's time. It's time. So let's jump in with a little bit of a background from each of you. Maybe we'll start with um, Kathy. And maybe you can just tell us a little bit of what the impetus was behind this first novel of yours. And as we heard in the introduction, maybe expand a little bit on your family background and experience with archaeology and how that interests you.
6: Sure. Um, as you mentioned, my mother was an archaeologist, and I grew up in a house where um, pre-Columbian pots and skulls and you know various kinds of artifacts were just part of the household decor. And my mother would tell me stories about her adventures in the southwest back in the 30s and um, in the Yucatan and Guatemala, the excavations that she did there. And so I just grew up with this in my environment. It was part of my DNA. Um, And don't get me wrong, when I was talking about, you know, you were talking about the I was saying, why is everything all fantasy based on European stuff? Um, Trolls and fairies and elves and cloaked heroes. I love those books. I am a Lord of the Rings fanatic, and I am a Game of Thrones fanatic. I love those kinds of stories. But I just have this, you know, there are so many thousands of fascinating traditions from Tierra del Fuego to Hudson Bay.
4: And I was wondering
6: why didn't more people use those um, archetypes and, and legends and mythologies and traditions and folk tales and fairy tales. Um, and so that's why I started writing the book. But I started writing it more or less as an experiment, not with the idea that I was actually going to write a novel. And then uh, the characters just came to life for me. I'd heard about this happening but didn't really believe it. But they absolutely came to life, and in some cases they would not become the characters that I had outlined in my mind. They took on their own life and their own personalities, which I hadn't intended. I know that sounds a little bit weird, but that's what happened for me.
1: And for you, Megan, this just happened to be in the... The, the same wheelhouse as your particular interest and specialty in studying archaeology, what was your background or what led you into one archaeology and anthropology in general, but then also specifically where did that interest come from for those particular cultures like Mayan and Aztec and that whole, um, this, this whole part of the world?
7: Well, I am fortunately or unfortunately, of the generation that grew up watching Indiana Jones from the time I could remember. So I always thought that archaeology was super cool, mostly because it was this terribly handsome man who was dashing off into the wilds of the world. And so I naively declared at seven I was going to be an archaeologist, and then over time actually figured out what an archaeologist really does and experimented more with history and with science, and realized that aside from discovering amazing treasures and running from Nazis, what archaeologists do is actually phenomenal and exciting and has a romance all of its own. And so I'm one of those few people that declared something at seven and actually went on to become a professional archaeologist. So um, the first experience that I really had with Mesoamerican archaeology and with the mythologies of the Maya and the Aztecs was when i was taking a course at on a summer program at harvard and i just fell in love with the archaeology of that of that region and of the monuments and the stories and from that point on i just was absolutely in love and really hoped to pursue an ar- a career in archaeology, um, specializing in Mesoamerican archaeology. Hasn't quite worked out that way yet, but there's still hope for the future. There's
6: still time. And Megan, that's exactly the way it happened for my mother, too. She decided when she was, you know, seven or eight that she wanted to be an archaeologist, and that's what she did. You know, it's it's a kind of
7: career that appeals to young children, and many grow out of it, but there are so many people that I know that are archaeologists today that they discovered it at four or five, seven years old, something like that, and just followed it through.
1: So if a, if a child came to each of you and said that they were interested in archaeology and being an archaeologist, what would you say to them?
7: I My first question?
6: Oh, go ahead, Kathy? I was just going to say, I I could not be more enthusiastic about supporting that child in their desire. I think our quality is incredibly important for understanding a lot of things about who we are today.
7: I completely agree. I actually run an outreach program through the project that I work with right now that is designed to teach kids four through 12 about archaeology and the first thing that I always make sure that kids understand is that we're not actually digging up dinosaur bones and if they're still super enthusiastic then there's a hope for them and there's a hope for them to you know enjoy archaeology in the future but once they get past that dinosaur bone hurdle um, if they still are in love with it it's going to be downhill for them I have to say they're just going to fall more and more in love. (laughs)
1: Well, or it might be an uphill struggle for them. Um, But I also think for both children and adults that it's important to help them, like Kathy was saying, to help them understand that archaeology isn't really so much about just digging up the past as it is about using the past to understand where we are and why we are and who we are today.
6: Agreed. And when when I was a child, oh, I wanted to be an archaeologist too, along with being, you know, a ballerina and a doctor and whatever. Um, and I was worried because I thought everything had already been found, you know, everything had already been dug up and everybody, all that was to be found out had already been found. And I've been so delighted over the decades since. Of the discoveries that they've made, and the uh, you know the new things that are being uncovered every day, and then add to that DNA analysis and the discoveries that have come about through that, like that you know most of us have two percent um, Neanderthal DNA, uh, so the Neanderthals are still with us, which I love. Um, it's just still a very vibrant, exciting. In fact, I think it's more exciting and more vibrant and more revealing than it ever was as a profession. Absolutely, I agree. Um,
7: One of the things that I work in currently is historical archaeology, which is a field that probably didn't even exist when your mom was doing archaeology, Kathy. And it's looking at archaeology and using the methodology of archaeology to understand the more recent past and sometimes even the contemporary past. And so it's a very reflexive discipline now that helps us understand ourselves and where our own perceptions and ideas have come from much more immediately than, you know, studying the archaeology of Teotihuacan or, um, you know, Egypt, for that matter. So it's a very reflexive process and a very um, eye-opening and revealing on a personal level as well.
1: And I think... And I think with the, uh, you know, the the advancements in technology, it's especially helped in, as Kathy was saying, you know, discovering new things. And what we see now is like discovering whole cities, for example, that are buried underneath water um, Mm -hmm. that wouldn't have necessarily been discovered before. Or we're not just discovering one little shard of a pottery, you know, piece. We're actually discovering like practically the whole city layout with all of the, streets and buildings and everything else just submerged underwater and I think that that has started to also be reflected when you talk Megan about the the contemporary past and that kind of thing but I also think discovering these really 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 old things whether it's old cities or different things that are buried but now technology can discover that we're starting to see that perhaps people from 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 years ago, actually weren't that much different, nor were they less intelligent or less resourceful or less technological given the things that they had available to them than we are today. Whereas I think an old way of thinking, whether in archaeological circles or just in general for people, is that people from a long time ago were so less advanced, or they didn't know this, and we now know more about that, and we're discovering more and more, I think, that they actually knew a lot that we know or that we think that we are now discovering, but it's just through science kind of confirming a lot of what we may have perceived for them as being their superstitions or myths, but actually may have had a lot more basis in some sort of uh, reality and, and truth rather than just superstition.
6: I would That's my say thing. absolutely. And it's amazing to me to look at places like Newgrange in Ireland, which is a passage tomb that has been it was built with a um a corbelled roof that has not leaked in five thousand years and they built this with monolithic stones that were transported from as long as much as 300 miles away with nothing but stone tools and no wheel. It's just as amazing as the Great Pyramids of uh, Egypt, except that um, they're older. The Newgrange is older than the Great Pyramids. So our ancestors are very, very, very old ancestors were very smart people, very resourceful people.
4: Absolutely.
7: I mean,
6: when you talk about the,
7: the um, advancements of some of the Inca stone builders, they were building buildings out of monumental monolithic stones that when they fit the two stones together to create a wall or a part of a building, you can't fit a credit card between them now. In some cases, they are microscopic microscopically matched grain for grain that prevents anything from getting between these stones and it's just mind-boggling that this was possible in a time when stone tools were the only option and not only moving the stones but putting them into place would have been done entirely by hand. It's just incredible.
1: Well, that's, I mean, it's just the influence and assistance of aliens. I've seen it on the History Channel that that's really what it was. <laughs>
6: oh, clearly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> a little old humanity couldn't possibly do that.
1: Well, um, <laughs> so uh, talking about Kathy's book, The Obsidian Mirror, and then you having talked about like the Incas and that kind of thing um, just now, I, I, I wanted to ask Kathy if, When you were writing the book, did you just draw from myths and characters that you already had familiarity with? Or did you find as the story took on its own life as you were writing it, that it also compelled you to uh, seek out and research new myths or, or to discover new characters in terms of like gods and that kind of thing that you perhaps hadn't been familiar with before?
6: Um, that is that is very accurate. I, I knew when I started I wanted to have Coyote the trickster, um, which I I en- always enjoyed reading stories about Coyote when I was a kid. Um, I just really liked that 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 archetype of the the trickster hero, who's also funny, like Loki. Um, and then I started doing things like. I already knew about Quetzalcoatl and I wanted to find an opposite, uh, you know, an antagonist to Quetzalcoatl, who's a, a, you know, basically a hero god. And I discovered, much to my surprise, that Quetzalcoatl had an evil twin, Necoquiotl or Tezcatlipoca or a number of other different names that they had for him. And I th- at first I thought, I can't use an evil twin. That's just too hackneyed. <laughs> and then I thought, well, but it's it's what he had. He had an evil twin. So I used Neko Kiotl in the story as my villain, as my arch villain. And one of the names, uh, well, Neko Kiotl actually means the obsidian mirror in the watch, And that the whole image of the obsidian mirror really gripped me because obsidian is dark, and it's you know reflective but opaque, and usually it's you know carved in such a way that the image that comes back to you is distorted. So it seemed to me that that was a metaphor for the underlying theme of my book, which is threat to the natural environment which to me is being caused by people serving their own base, selfish interests without regard for the greater good of mankind, much less the greater good of the environment in the world. So looking into the obsidian mirror is to look and to get a distorted, twisted, dark vision in return. I researched, because every once in a while I'd run along, you know, I'd be writing along and I'd be going, I need a monster here. So I'd get on the internet and I'd see what I could turn up by way of monsters or um, evil guys. And I have to admit, I was very indiscriminate. Um, I was, it's not j- like J.R.R. R. Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, where uh, he had a very consistent mythos within the Lord of the Rings. And he criticized C.S. Lewis for dragging in Greek gods and goddesses and all different kinds of traditions. He just kind of glued them together. I'm more in the C.S. Lewis vein in that I went out and got whatever it was that served my story, whether it was an Inuit ice demon or uh, a Cree little funny guy named um, Nanagishi. Sort of like a leprechaun but with orange eyes. And so it's a a mishmash. Oh, I also stuck voodoo in there because voodoo is very much a unique new world tradition. Um, So it's a pastiche. It's not consistent. It draws on many, many different uh, traditions.
1: And Megan, um, I know you had mentioned to me that you had read the book and I'm curious if reading the book, you know, sometimes you hear from people who are doctors and they say they can never watch television shows about doctors or hospitals because they can't get past all of the inaccuracies and the, the outrageousness of different things. Um, as you read this book, was there anything that stood out to you that either kind of tweaked your little archaeological nerve where you were like, oh, no, oh, no okay, that is, that, well, that's a certainly literary license. <laughs> or or where there some things where you said, wow, you know, she's doing really well at being very authentic, or this is really, you know, sticking to what that understanding is for that myth or that character or something?
7: You know, um, I'm not quite like a doctor in that regard. Um, I get tweaked at the History Channel when they purport to say something was true that was not true. But um, I appreciate, you know... F- taking fictional license and um, borrowing lock, stock, and barrel from anything and everything you can put your hands on, it makes for a really exciting and adventurous um, experience. That's for sure as far as I'm concerned. Um, one of the things that I was a little perplexed by was the sort of, you know, on the, on the back of the book, it declares that it's following the Maya um, you know it, it's based on the, the Maya mythology and then once we got into the book um, it was you know primarily Aztec names and nomenclature was being used and so I was just sort of like okay and but once we got over that I it was just really interesting to see, um, see you bring all of these different characters and all of these different creatures together into a single world um, Kathy I really appreciated that and the um, choices that you were making on what characters you would bring or what gods was really intriguing to me. Um, I didn't always understand it, but I don't always have to either. I can just sit back and enjoy as well.
6: Well, thank you, and I'm glad you enjoyed
7: it. I was a little worried.
6: <laughs>
7: oh, don't worry at all.
6: <laughs> it, was, it was really
7: an intriguing... Um, I mean, I'm fascinated by books that bring mythology to, and very old mythologies to the, to our world or to today's presence. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Percy Jackson series, but they do a similar thing with um, uh, Greek mythology, and they basically uh-huh. put, put modern, put the Greek uh, gods and goddesses in the guise of um, you know, modern modern characters, and you know, all of a sudden Poseidon becomes a fisherman who wears a hat with lures on it and, um, you know, just sort of mish- mishmashing and putting it all together. And so I really appreciated the fact that you sort of turned everything on its head and brought in um, some intriguing characters that I don't think most people know about either.
6: Well, that's true, and that's probably one reason I could get away with it. Um, You know, if I tried to do the same thing with Greek or Roman mythology, it would be a little harder because people have more hard and fast expectations for those characters, for those Mm -hmm. gods. Um, But as it was, I was dealing with a lot of stuff that people don't, I think the majority of people don't know that much about. Um, So far, nobody's stuck up their hand and said, this is all wrong. Uh, They said about the back of the book saying it was Mayan, Um, You would know more about this than I would, Megan. But when I started reading about these mythologies, the difference between Maya, Aztec, and various other tribes in the same region, it all kind of, it got very blurry because they would appropriate gods from each other and they would you know, take a god from one tradition, fit it into their tradition, and become something slightly different. Um, so it's not—it's not like you can say that. At least I don't think there is. You can't say there's just the Aztec tradition was this way and the Maya tradition was that way. Um, there was a lot of cultural borrowing back and forth. Would you agree?
7: I certainly do agree. There's a lot of cultural borrowing, um, but from The work that I've done, it seems like the Aztec tradition, while it does borrow from the Maya, it owes more of its origins to the traditions of northern Mexico, um, to the Zapotec and to some of the other um, groups that are probably closer to where the Aztecs actually came from. Um, You know, certainly it owes a great deal to the traditions of Teotihuacan from what we can understand, and the Aztecs borrowed liberally from Teotihuacan um, iconography, And certainly, there was extensive contact with the Maya, and there was some some cultural borrowing. But it it seems that many, while there was borrowing, it does seem to me, or at least it always felt, that they're a little more distinct. Um, You may have similar gods, but the stories that get told about them are distinct in the Maya tradition versus the Aztec. And so I felt like you blurred those lines a, a little further for me. Um, which certainly works for the purpose of the story, that was for sure. Um, But I sometimes wonder about just how much, um, you know, the the origin story that involves Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca is similar to the origin story of the Maya. Um, And they have similarities and similar themes between them, but the actual actions are very different.
6: Okay, granted. Um, for my purposes, of course, I wasn't uh, required to be academic, so I... Oh, absolutely. I ha- borrow and have it. fun with it. Please do. <laughs> uh, I, I intend to. The, the next book is going to be set, the sequel to The Obsidian Mirror, is going to be set in Hawaii. Um, so I'm now looking into that whole mythos.
7: Oh, that will be fun. That'll be really exciting to draw on some of the traditions of the Hawaiian Islands and, you know, even some Polynesian, um, older Polynesian myths. Um, I think you, I I look for looking forward to that now.
6: <laughs> oh, good. Thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. And this the the whole mishmash of different gods and that kind of thing makes me kind of think of Neil Gaiman's American Gods, where yeah. gods from <laughs> practically every pantheon showed up at one point or another as all being kind of on this on the same playing field just in the sense that they were all kind of operating in that world all at the same time with each other rather than having any sort of real distinction and and I just want to tell you we're already trending on Twitter now oh, i'm good. not i'm not saying that this is my headline but i just wanted to let you know that it's already trending that then the headline says Battle Royale erupts between the worlds of literature and archaeology as author Katie Keenan and archaeologist Megan Kane go at it in a catfight of Mayan proportions. Now, I'm not sure if that's the authentic Mayan proportion or if somebody is blurring the line with Aztec and Incan proportions, but I did just want to let you know that we are trending at this moment.
4: I think
6: it's false advertising because we're basically just having a really cozy conversation. <laughs> Very friendly.
4: Yes. Well, but I you must know,
7: say that this is the first time I've ever trended on Twitter. Well,
4: <laughs> Me there too. You
7: go.
1: And and, and that, that kind of headline is really much better publicity for your novels, Kathy. Let us just admit.
4: Well, People don't yes, go out and buy a novel...
1: True. Yeah, they don't go out and buy a novel just because they heard, oh, that author was having tea and a nice conversation with someone. (laughs) Good
4: good
6: point. Maybe maybe we ought to make this more contentious. Yes. Um, Darn you and your archaeological (laughs) stiffness. That doesn't come out quite right. Sorry. Sling that
1: ancient ancient Mayan mud.
6: Yeah, really. The the (laughs) heck with your academic insistence on being
1: nice rebuttal rebuttal archaeologist Megan Cain
6: Um, well all fiction is just wishy-washy I don't know (laughs) (laughs) I don't do it very well at contentious conversations apparently I know we're just the wrong people for this I see so sorry it's okay
1: it's okay I, I, I was also curious and Kathy you can answer from your literature perspective Megan, you can answer from an archaeological perspective. Are are we getting ourselves into trouble by constantly saying the name of the evil twin? You see, I'm not going to say it. Because I learned in that book that it is way (laughs) too dangerous to say that name.
6: Well, actually, you can say Nekka in my book without any difficulty, but don't never say Tess Tess, Tess, (laughs) kattel
1: then Why did you just say it?
6: I made that up. There were some (laughs) things that I made up. That was one of them. Mm -hmm.
1: It was like Beetlejuice. So yeah. is it true? Is it true, Megan? Is that made up or, or have you found have you uncovered evidence? Is I have saying... never
7: heard that before. My professors have battled Pescotlipoca, have batted it about Six Ways to Sunday during class. So
4: How many um, of them are still alive?
7: I, it, as far as I know, yes. They're still oh. publishing, so <laughs>
1: But is it them or are they possessed now someone else is publishing?
7: Maybe that's the case and we just don't know it.
1: That's right. So, and and whether from the book or not, are there any particular myths uh, and or figures from the myths that are your favorites and have been or suddenly now are that you've discovered them through the process of either writing the book or reading the book?
6: Well, I have to say coyote, um, the trickster, has always been dear to my heart, and I once had a very personal encounter with a coyote that was has always been very meaningful to me. I guess you could call it a personal myth. Um, I had a broken heart, and I went to my cousin's ranch, cattle ranch, to um, think things over and see if I could... I'll find my way out of a sad situation. And I was out on the ranch walking with the dogs, and the ranch dogs, and a coyote suddenly appeared out of the brush. And the dogs took out after this coyote. And I thought, well, they know what they're doing. So I, I just sat down and waited for them to come back. And they did. And they'd been given a good run. They were panting and panting. And the coyote came with them and sat down a few feet away from me. And I was very uh, worried because that's not normal behavior for a coyote, and I was worried that maybe it, you know, rabies or something horrible like that. And uh, he sat there and looked at me for a while, and then he he tilted his head back, and he howled. And I I listened, and when he stopped, I howled. And he cocked his head, sat there and listened to me, and when I stopped, he howled. And we went back and forth and back and forth for quite a while. And then the dogs couldn't stand it anymore, and they got up and stampeded after him, and he took off. Um, but he took off with a smile on his face, I would have to say. He was looking back over his shoulder. He, just, he would just kind of float over the bushes. and the dogs were, like, crashing behind him. And he had a, he had a big grin on his face, and he would yap every once in a while to kind of incite them further. And that lifted my heart. It lifted my heart and gave me strength. And I made a a commitment from that moment on that I would be strong. I would not let this destroy me. I would make a beautiful thing out of my life. I would survive like the coyote survives. So he's always been my personal totem, if you will.
7: Well, oh, that is such a lovely story, Kathy. Absolutely beautiful. I don't have anything quite so personal, but my favorite god in this sort of pantheon of Mesoamerica has always been Huitzilopochtli, who is the patron god of the Aztecs. And his name means hummingbird on the left, and it you know he's the one or one of the gods that had the um, temple built to him in down in what is now downtown Mexico City um, for the uh, you know by the Aztecs, and I just I've always been intrigued by him as a, as a character and the connection with the hummingbird is just it's a poetic one and. He's often depicted as a a guide that brought the Aztecs to their new land, and he's just a a welcoming character in many guises. Um, Often he can be somewhat violent when he's protecting his people, but um, the idea, and it's also just so much fun to say Huitzilopochtli, so,
4: <laughs>
7: so if you ever have the chance, I'd love to see you incorporate him into something.
6: <laughs> I'm making a note right now. I about Percy Jackson. I, I will note I that down too.
1: Okay. Do Do you have plans to carry over many of the characters and things through the series, Kathy? Or oh, will yeah. you? Oh, I, I don't know. If, when you move to like Hawaii, you'll then just focus more on that mythology and the, the gods and things from there or if some of these will continue to interact?
6: <laughs> well, I haven't, I haven't gotten thoroughly into developing that story yet. I'm still doing research but I will tell you that Chaco, that's Coyote the trickster, um, Chaco and Fred who's the Managishi who's one of my favorite characters are going to go with my protagonist Sierra to Hawaii and Chaco is going to discover that his supernatural power is tied to his earth, to the land that he comes from. And he's going to find himself abruptly and uncomfortably human. And Fred is going to meet his people. Oh, that is so exciting.
7: I love the idea of transforming these sort of supernatural characters and bringing them down to the level of humanity and seeing it's a a great mirror for us as humans to understand what our humanity is about. Um, When, you know, all of a sudden you have this character faced with sort of their inability to, um, you know, to do what they normally would do and they have to act as humans. And I think it makes us appreciate being human in different ways. It just reminds me of Q in Star Trek Next Generation when he's deprived of his powers. And
6: all of a sudden, you have to
7: function as a human.
6: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Similar to that, similar to that. I haven't thought about Q, but you're right. Sorry,
7: everything goes back to Star Trek for me.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I know what you mean. I'm kind of the same way myself.
7: (laughs) Well,
1: and that that makes me want to come back to what we were talking about in the roundtable discussion earlier in the show, um, is what... Importance or relevance? Do you think that myths and mythologies play for us today? Um, Do you think that there's something to them that is more than just an old story that some people from an old time told? To me, there there has to be more to them because we keep retelling them and remaking them over and over again. So there seems to be something much more to them, and I'm just curious what you feel, um, just both from a personal slash literary aspect as well as from an archaeological aspect because there's even a whole discipline, archaeomythology, where they mm-hmm. they use mythology as the kind of the, the means of doing the archaeological process, which I find very fascinating, you know, because I think it started way back in the late 1800s when this German archaeologist, I think he was German, um, was looking for the, the city of Troy and actually used Homer's Iliad as the way of finding it and, and locating it.
7: Yeah, yeah, Heinrich Schliemann was his name.
1: Yeah, and so and so to me that shows that there's a lot more value and resonance in myths and mythology than just being an old story. So I'm just curious what your perspectives are regarding myths and the role and relevance they play. Megan,
6: you want to go first?
7: Thank you. I was going to offer to you, but um, you know... That's not
1: how we I trend think... on Twitter.
6: No, that's not. Megan! Clearly I mean, really not. You're, you're stepping on my lines, Megan. Yeah.
7: <laughs> so I think for me, myths are ultimately how people of the past or people of today tried to explain the world around them. And telling a story that explains whether it's, you know, righto clipping, Kipling's just those stories that explain how the leopard got its spots or that talk about, um, you know, the story of Europa that explains um, how Europe got its name in, in ancient Greece. These are stories that are attempting to explain the world and they're attempting to give meaning to the world that these people see around them. And so, in that regard, they're deeply important because they answer to how pe- this sort of age-old concept of how people grapple with explaining what they see. Now, I'm always hesitant as an archaeologist to use mythology as a major source um, when we when I'm studying, because you know Heinrich Schliemann got awfully lucky. And in many ways, he actually got things wrong. The layer of Troy that he identified as being Homer's Troy was actually off by several hundred years. So his reasoning um, didn't exactly hold up as well as he would have liked. But he was also working with a story that was part myth, but it was part epic poem, and had a great deal more grounding in potential historic events into description than many myths do. Many myths don't have the attention to detail that, you know, Homer's Iliad does in describing the landscape or describing um, sites or describing um, what people were experiencing. So I think he got lucky, um, but it's rare for archaeologists to be able to use that same kind of... um, Reasoning at other sites or in other cultures.
6: Um, I well, yeah, I agree with you. I, uh, earlier in the conversation, we were talking about the dangers of taking mythology too literally or too seriously, and I think that mythologies are how people Explained the world to themselves, and I think that that's in a sense, what all storytelling is, whether it's television or movies or books or whatever, is every story is a way of explaining something to ourselves. And um, from that standpoint, it's immortal. It will always be, as long as there are people, there will always be storytelling. And there will always be mythologies. And people will always do as I did with Coyote and say, this this is a symbol to me. This is meaningful, and here's the meaning I derive from it. Because we are storytellers, and we are myth makers um, by, by nature.
1: And do you think that we are writing or creating new myths today that people... 100, 500, 1,000, 3,000 years from now we'll look back and still be able to gain perhaps insight or perspective around what people today believed or believed in? Uh, Or do you think that we don't seem to necessarily approach things or I don't want to say have the capacity because I think we do have the capacity, but do you think that we're generating new myths and mythologies. I know some people will look at, like we said in the round table, some people will look at things like Star Trek or Star Wars as kind of modern mythologies. Um, but I'm curious whether you feel there's anything that seems to qualify as actual new myth or mythology.
6: Well, you know, my mom used to say she had various artifacts and um, I'd say, well, what was that used for? And she'd say, well, we don't know, but whenever we found something, we didn't know what it was, we'd say it was a ritual object or, a, you know, a, a, a religious, it had a religious purpose, which is just another way of saying you don't know. And I think there's going to be so much, whatever's left of our civilization, people in the future will be forced to do what archaeologists have to do today, which is make a lot of guesses. Um, and some of those guesses are bound to be really wrong. As we have discovered, we've made guesses about civilizations in the past about what they believed and have come to find out in some cases that we were wrong or that we simply just don't know. And the keys, the keys to that understanding, have been lost. There is no Rosetta Stone that we can use to reconstruct what some of these civilizations were really like. So I, I think it would be um, not too far out of the realm of possibility if, like the the archeo- the anthropologist that created the Nasarima, if you read that backwards, it's Americans, um, where he was talking about how the Nasirima have a sacred space in their home that is dedicated to the cleansing and purification of the body. And this is the most important place in any home. It's where the water comes in that they can use for ritual bathing. Of course, he's talking about a bathroom. It was just a way of illustrating how little we really do know about the remains of the civilizations we're studying. Or the other part of that story is that we worship the alligator
7: because we wear the Lacoste polos that have the alligator mm-hmm. over our heart all of the time, right?
6: Yes, yes. Another. It was, it's a really long essay, but it's really funny, and you can you can see it online
7: if you look. It's for a it. brilliant sort of example of how archaeologists and how, how anthropologists can just get it so freaking dead wrong. Um,
4: and we Mm -hmm. still do
7: that. I mean, the the story that you told of your mother reminds me so much of some of the experiences I've had in excavations where, oh, we have no clue what that was. It must have been for ritual or it must have had some sort of sacred importance just because we don't understand it today. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a danger that we still fall into, unfortunately. But going back to the question that you had, Heisey, about new mythologies, um, there are some sort of mythologies that I think, I mean, the, the line between mythology and fairy tale can often be somewhat hazy. So I think today we are still creating fairy tales or reappropriating them. But what I think is really exciting is the fact that we are constantly reappropriating old mythologies and old fairy tales for our own purposes. And, you know, reusing um you know, age-old characters or age-old stories in new ways gives us a deeper connection to the past and sort of keeps that connection to our history and our heritage alive, which, as an archaeologist, I find so important and so fascinating. Um, I mean, in many ways, if you go and talk of another mythology um, that is probably fairly prevalent now is Harry Potter. I mean, Harry Potter is drawing on characters and creatures that have their heritage very, very deep in um, Britain and in uh, Western Europe and using them in new ways and applying them to a new situation and recreating them in ways that I don't think the early Britons would have ever imagined. And in that way, I find it very refreshing and exciting, but also very heartening that these stories still have meaning, and these characters still have uh, importance for us today. And uh-huh. a
1: thousand years from now, if they dig up Florida, they'll, uh-huh. they'll think that we were building grand temples to Harry Potter and all of these characters because of the whole theme park thing that we have. You know, how would they know any different?
7: And who is this crazy mouse with a tuxedo on and big white-gloved hands?
1: (laughs) Obviously some fantastical god that they all worship.
6: Yeah. Uh, Well, one can only imagine what they'll make of the ears. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, That would be a
6: good
5: story.
1: It would. But I think that the big difference now that seemingly to me in my perception is when we think of the old mythologies and, and the the older cultures where these mythologies come from, the associations and the things that they drew or the things that or the way that they drew them or represented them was all done with a, a lot of thought and a lot of symbolism and an understanding of why it was there and i don't know that we put that kind of thought into things today like just to play off of the mickey mouse example you know i, I don't think that walt disney put a, a lot of thought into the symbolism of the big ears versus it was just an exaggeration of a, a mouse right <laughs> and that and that right. may be where the, the the you step across the line from say story to mythology is when there is that That intentionality of symbolism and a lot of time has been spent to really understand what you're representing and why and where it's coming from versus it just being something that looks funny or looks pretty or something like that.
4: Well,
6: that may be something that future um, people won't understand about us, that we weren't really thinking when we did this, we just did it. But I wonder how much that applies to ancient civilizations as well. You know, what are we missing, you know, when we say, oh, this was a temple to this god, and in fact, it might have been something else entirely.
1: A Walmart of ancient times.
6: <laughs> <laughs> something like that, yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh, so I'm, I, I'm going to hand the floor over to you, keeping in mind, of course, how we trend on Twitter, that to see if either of you have a question for the other.
6: Um, You did, you, Megan, you were uh, excavating in Peru and southwestern
4: United States, was that it?
7: Um, Mostly in California, actually. Um, Never gotten the opportunity to work in Arizona or New Mexico, even though I would absolutely love to. Just haven't gotten the chance as of yet. (laughs)
6: What were you uh what were you studying in California?
7: Um I have done a couple of excavations on um, colonial period sites here in California. So studying uh the Spanish colonial period. I worked at the San Diego Presidio and then I've also done some work at the San Francisco Presidio as well, looking at you know those first few decades immediately after contact with the new with um the Spaniards and specifically how um, how the Spaniards would set up uh, forts and fortifications and establish their military presence in the in the new uh, new colony basically.
6: Yeah. Wow, um, did you have you discovered anything about the Spanish occupation that would surprise us? Mm,
7: not exactly. No, <laughs> the um, it's both of the excavations that I worked on. I was. It was all sort of a testing our hypotheses, which are all based on historical knowledge and everything sort of like, okay, yeah, this confirms it all. There was no, nothing really shocking or earth-shattering that came out of those particular excavations that I worked with, um, which was kind of a shame. Um, but sometimes that means that we're doing our job well and we have done our research up to a point well, and we're just confirming, confirming what we already know or not or don't know. So... Yeah, it, I, have, I have this really bad luck when I go into the field. If you want a unit that is dug down two meters with completely sterile, hard-packed clay, put me there because I will not find anything. Um, I will not even find a wall. Um, the excavation that I worked on in Italy, I worked in a single trench for almost three weeks and found a single bone that I had the misfortune to put my picks through before it came out oh. of the ground. So, yeah. This is why I work in the lab more now, because then I'm assured of handling objects and having that personal connection with, with items. Got it. Yeah.
1: And, and Megan, anything you would like to ask Kathy?
7: Well, my big question was going to hear about your next book, because I was really intrigued by that. But as we've talked and remembering the book and hearing your bio again, I'm sort of curious as to how much your main character, Sierra, is sort of a, an autobiography. How similar is she to you? I mean, you share similar professions in the PR realm and all of that, and clearly you both have interests in archaeology and in history, so I'm just wondering how much is she modeled after you and your own experiences?
6: Well, they say that everyone's first novel is autobiographical, and I would have to say that there is very little of my um, biography in the novel. But uh, they also say write what you know. And Mm -hmm. I made Sierra a PR executive because I had been a PR executive and also because PR people have a unique kind of insight into what goes on in a company. Mm -hmm. Um, They have access to the executives. And they have access to the product people and the sales people and, you know, they just get, they get to go everywhere in the company. They can find out a lot about a company. So it seemed to me like an ideal position for her and it would also be really easy for me to write because I know it inside out. However, that being said, um, she makes jewelry on the side and I also design and fabricate original sterling silver jewelry. Again, it was something that I could write about knowledgeably. It wasn't because it was something that I do. It was was because of my personal knowledge. Um, Sierra is also a lot younger than me and much more athletic. Uh, And she just, in a lot of ways, is not me at all. I wanted somebody... uh, Sierra is the person I might have been if I'd made a lot of different choices in my life. How's that? (laughs)
7: I can understand okay. that,
1: <laughs> like to follow that coyote into the woods. Mm.
6: yeah, I love that coyote I really
1: do uh and uh, and I will just mention that your book is easily available and found on Amazon as well as yep. other places.
6: Barnes and Noble. And uh, the ebook will be available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and the Apple um,
4: i-book i-book. store.
1: And that yeah. yeah, and I think I think I saw that that's like September fourth or something like that. that yeah. it becomes a the, the ebook.
4: The
6: paperback is available today.
1: In fine stores everywhere.
6: Exactly.
1: <laughs> the Obsidian Mirror, just to remind people. And and your your next one will be out by the beginning of next year.
6: Um, I doubt it because I'm busy marketing the Obsidian Mirror right now. Um, and I'd like to get that well underway before I actually start writing the next book because I, you know, I, I, I owe my first novel the best start that I can give it in life.
1: All right. And do you have a website or just a Facebook page?
6: I have a website. It's, um, HTTP.com.
1: All right. And people can find all the information as well as purchase the book from there. And for uh, you, yeah. Megan. Uh and and for you, Megan, is, is there a, a website you can give out that maybe just talks about the project you're working on at Stanford?
7: Um, yes which I haven't mentioned at all up to this point actually. If you're interested in hearing more about the historical archaeology that I do today and our outreach programs, you can visit it's marketstreet.stanford.edu. And it's, um, I, so today I work with the Market Street Chinatown Archaeology Project which examines the first Chinatown that was located in San Jose, which was located where the Fairmont Hotel is today in downtown San Jose.
1: All right. And to finish each conversation every month, I always have two questions. One is a question that was posed by a previous guest without knowing who would be asked that question, which I will then ask of both of you to respond to. And then secondly, I will give each of you an opportunity to pose a question for a future guest, not knowing who it may be, but simply question that you want to put out there for someone in the future to answer. So the question from a previous guest is, do you believe in a God or a creator of some sort or at least some perception of one and does that come from your own understanding and perception or from some particular tradition or has that been influenced by something in terms of how you view that?
6: Wow. That's deep. Okay. (laughs) Kathy, would you like to go first? (laughs) Uh, Oh, sure, I would. Um, uh, For somebody that writes about gods and and uh, supernatural powers. I'm a very mundane individual because I don't actually believe in God, per se. I believe in the forces of nature, and I find great spiritual solace in nature. But I don't believe that there's anybody that's worrying about... Uh, what I eat or where I go on Sundays or who I marry or don't marry. I just don't think there's anybody out there that cares. And I find that a very comfortable and um, good, good, warm, rich place to be for me.
7: Well, for my part... I believe in a higher power I couldn't explain what I think that is I couldn't put into words where that belief exactly comes from um, but in many ways I'm very similar to Cassie where I don't believe that whatever that higher power may be I don't believe that it actively is concerned with my day-to-day life Um I don't think that it is going to be terribly upset if I wear the wrong clothes or you know misbehave in in some way um, but i do I do believe in something, and I think that you know my sort of notion that there is something out there but it's not concerned with me is more a reaction to all of the religious training in various areas I've had over my life, and it's sort of a, well, this is not what it is, um, because this is awkward, but, um, so I think it's sort of a defining in the negative sense, based on the sort of experiences I've had with with specific religions and um, individuals who very clearly believe in God in the Judeo-Christian sense.
1: Okay. And now for the second part of that, what question would you like to pose for a future guest? And we'll start with Kathy.
6: Mine is two parts. What will be the next phase of your life? And have you planned it out? Or did you, are you just going to take what comes?
1: Okay. And Megan?
7: Sorry, I was answering Kathy's question in my head. That's an excellent question to ask. Um, mine's going to be far more mundane, but um, I think my question is going to be, what was the last book that you read that you really loved that touched you in some way, and why? Hmm.
1: I don't think that's a mundane question. I think that's a very good question.
7: Oh, thank you. I think so, too. I'm always looking. For, I'm in, the, in between books at the moment. Now that I've finished yours, Kathy, I'm looking for something new. So that's usually <laughs> my question when I'm trying to find what to read next.
6: <laughs> I'll send you some suggestions about that.
2: <laughs> you do?
1: She, you know, she said she would send you some suggestions.
2: Oh, please do. Thank yes. you. <laughs> sir, <laughs>
6: sir. But as long as we're having a fight, we may as to have a knockdown fight.
7: <laughs> but, no noses were bloodied in this experience unfortunately <laughs> or fortunately for Twitter <laughs>
1: and for Megan as well as anyone listening any particular book that just popped right to the top of your head Kathy to recommend
6: um, well you know I could probably come up with a better answer if I thought about it for a while but um, C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles is something that I go back to and read every few years and it's partly like comfort food, you know, something that was very dear to me as a child Um, but partly that every time I read the books I get just a little bit something new out of it as well as just the pleasure of revisiting uh, a a world that I I like to say that I uh, lived my early childhood in Oz, moved to Narnia, and um, then moved on to Middle Earth. <laughs> and um, I loved living in Narnia, and I like going back there. But there's also just always some little bit of wisdom that C.S. Lewis puts out there that I I learn every time I read it.
4: All right.
1: Well, I would like to extend a thousand gratitudes to each of you for having been willing to take the time to join me here today and have this discussion. So thank you very much. Thank you.
6: And thank you mm-hmm. for this trend on Twitter.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm never one to not promote a good cat fight. Uh, <laughs> and I will just remind people that they can find information about uh, K.D. Keenan or Kathy Keenan and her book The Obsidian Mirror, the first in a series, by visiting theobsidianmirror.net. And you can also find out about the work that archaeologist Megan Kane is doing with the first Chinese settlement in San Jose uh, at marketstreet.stanford.edu. Is that correct? Yes. All right. So, my thanks to author Katie Keenan and to archaeologist Megan Kane for having joined us here today. And stay tuned. Coming up, we have our Living Well segment with Linda Wiley, and following that is your chance to get a reading live on the air with me, I see. Um, And you can do that by Skyping in from the show page or calling 646-716-5510. So... I encourage you to get in the queue if you're interested in that, and we will be right back.
0: listening to Revolution with host Icy Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Icy at Firefly Willows L-I-V-E we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun and lightning and heart-centered information and community and we're passionate about the art of transformative media the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected media rich world If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us. Host a show or be a guest or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E helping you find and shine your inner light.
8: I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well in our changing world. Food is alive, it is a being, it is a sacred being. Food is not just our vital need, it is the web of life. Vandana Shiva Our body is a machine for living, it is organized for that, it is its nature. Let life go on in it, unhindered, and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it with remedies. Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace. To realize our connection with all of life and the plant and animal kingdom and how we support and help each other in our process. I am Linda Wiley and this is Living Well with Linda. Today, I wanted to explore further the idea of both and rather than either or and what that means in life and how we change because of it. Much of what we will speak of today comes from a book I'm reading called Navigating the Coming Chaos, a handbook for inner transition by Carolyn Baker. So how do we keep our well-being in centered place within as the world around us changes almost daily? As the title suggests, It is the inner reality that must be cultivated and seen for this to happen. So how do we do this? First, we must realize that disconnection from the inner world estranges us from what matters most, family, community, ourselves, each other, and indeed the earth, which is our very life. It puts more value out there on things that are life-destroying rather than in here, where the choice would always be non-toxic. Carl Jung says, your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart. Who looks outside dreams. Who looks inside awakens. So what are some of the tools to take us inside more deeply? For it is the healing of the wounds that allow us to move forward in clarity. When we move from within, we make choices that are life-supporting, sustainable, and most importantly, authentic. For this is the place of the heart. Because the program does not promote looking within, we have lost our way to the inner world. And therefore, we are very uncomfortable with it, even terrified. But it is the key to life, the only way to freedom and well-being. In this both-and world, that also means there is darkness, not only light. The depth of our being is the darkness within. As we cultivate it, acknowledge it, and this is indeed what is happening to our world around us. And to us, though most cannot see it or feel it yet, life is in transformation. It's asking us to uh, take another look, to see that perhaps it's not quite right. And so we are burning out the dross to find the gold. And that gold is a life lived in harmony and peace, with both light and dark to lead the way. Commingled, we can dance on the edge. So here are a few ways of helping us find the way in. Journaling. It is a way to have a conversation with yourself, to get that stuff out of your head. It's very powerful to see what comes out when given the freedom to be expressed. For once it's down on paper, it's seen, and there is no taking it back. It is there for us to look at and take actions to heal, or relish in, or just appreciate what is seen. And it can be very helpful to write during uh, these major times of transformation uh, and major transitions within and without. Dreams. Dream interpretation is a wonderful tool as a way to see what's up within. I have spent many years looking at my dreams, and I have learned so much about myself. A great book to help you take a deeper look at your dreams is The Dream Book by Betty Bessard. I also use it when a symbol or some such thing keeps appearing in my life and I need to get an interpretation. It helps the deepening happen. Also, the tarot is a great tool. If I'm confused on an issue, cannot seem to make sense of it, or just feeling great, I can consult my deck. There are so many, but I happen to like the Zen Osho deck because it's really about the mind. And that's... Uh, where these cards take us we can definitely get clarity but it takes hearing what the cards say and looking within to find out and following the wisdom of the cards not pushing it aside not saying oh it doesn't matter or it can't be real because i found personally that the cards are never wrong even if you don't want to hear what they have to say (laughs) so it's a beautiful process This looking within Meditation is another tool of calming of the mind and body deeply being present. Harvard Medical School reports it's not all in your head. What we found is that when you evoke the relaxation response, the very genes that are turned on or off by stress are turned the other way. The mind can actively turn on and off genes. Wow. The mind is not separate from the body. Being grounded and centered, you are a help to yourself and others. The breath is also a marvelous tool to use uh, to help us go within. Just follow the breath in and out, in and out, relax, following your breath. I add a yes and a thank you to the in and out breath. So meditation can take us way deep inside to the place where the body can actually start a healing process. Knowing how to breathe and relax is a very important part of health and well-being. Learning to accept what is also helps the levels of stress in our life. Creating beauty. With so much meaninglessness around us these days, being creative and having beauty around us solidifies that inner realm of knowing and soothes the being in our soul. We all hunger for beauty, the beauty of nature, natural products, In our disconnect, we have forgotten that nature and beauty are part of who we are, that this whole world is a deep mystery of untold beauty, and that is what we are. This is deeply healing. May we learn to express this more fully all the time, seeing beauty within and without adds such richness to our lives as we love ourselves, and therefore the world, but not at the expense of the darkness where it is now included and seemed to be an ally of unremembered strength and truth. For many know that out of the darkness comes the most powerful expression of beauty. Darkness must be redefined in its truth. Another lovely way is to delight in nature, for it is a, the reflection back to us about who and what we are and the deep beauty that is our truth. The soil, the is, soil our soul, is, our
4: soul. is our soul, is
8: our body. Being in nature nourishes the soul, the being, the mind, the body. Walking barefoot on the earth is called grounding, and it balances the body's electrical systems and meridians and imparts health and well-being. Yes, I can feel the difference. I now work a lot barefoot in the garden. It feels great, too. Anyway, the whole point is to walk and be in nature, but not just through nature, Sit in nature, let it surround you, fill you up, feel it. That's the nourishing part. So in this both and world of both light and dark, we must welcome the darkness for for that is the place of the soul. Without the darkness, life is out of balance and a lie. Finding the sacred in the darkness gives balance and wholeness to life and it's the expression of both and. It is not only light, So in this understanding, we are encouraged to see the elephant in the room and speak of it. For it is in our conversation that the heart of life will be revealed more deeply, as we see that our despair is really our deep care, and that many of us feel this way. It's wonderfully connecting. When we find our hearts again, we will see and know and live at last the truth of the deep care of the earth and the people, and we will see to it that all have what they need to live a life in peace and freedom. For this is the way of the heart and the soul. This is true brotherhood and community. And this gives well-being to all. From the famous poet Tagore. Evidently, the only way to find the path is to set fire to my own life. And so it is for all of us in this deep time of alchemical transition and change. We have looked without far too long. And we... See where it has taken us, so far afield. Yet, with the understanding of our sacred stewardship of each other and the planet and a return to living in life-supporting ways, life can generate, regenerate and, as it does, us along with it. Fall is one in this play of light and dark dancing, spinning the web of life. What a gift it is. So here are some fun food ideas for August, the time of family fun and barbecues and vacations. Raw kale chips. They're easy to make, fun, good for you, and good tasting. It's a great little finger bowl treat for parties and home. I'm not going to share the recipe with you right now because there's so many variations on the theme and it's easy to find online because they're a very popular item right now. So all you need is a Uh, Vitamix, a food blender, and a food dehydrator. Uh, Another fun idea would be garden sage pesto. Very creative. Turns out sage has many health benefits too, as many of our herbal allies do. So many to list, it seems, but digestion, infections, dental problems, bleeding, anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and on it goes. We can offer so much health and healing via our food without having to say a word about it. So it has in it sage, parsley, garlic, olive oil, salt, pepper. It doesn't have any cheese, but I see no reason why we couldn't add some Parmesan if we wanted to experiment, see what tastes good. I am taking greens from the garden and chopping small amounts of them, chopping them up small, tossing brags, <coughs> excuse me, brags and yeast, brewer's yeast with them and then dehydrating them until they're really crispy and you make little sprinkles out of them and put them on top of your, of your food. I also thought to do this with summer squashes as they're so plentiful right now and just dehydrate them, a little seasoning on them and then sprinkle them on top of your salads or your soups or on top of your sautéed veggies. It's a great way to save and incorporate these things into our, to our food. And for your barbecues, search out the local farms for fresh local meats and veggies. Grilled veggies, meats, and potatoes are the staples of the summer barbecue. Yummy. And serve all this with some sage pesto. A couple of books here. Uh, Celtic Folklore Cooking by Joanna Asala. It's fun to explore and see how we cooked long ago. There's still some great ideas in there. and I'm going to be making the elderberry wine myself. I also love the seasonality of it. Everything does have a season. It's good to eat within the season. The body loves it. Spirit loves it. So does nature. And then this book that we've been speaking about earlier, Navigating the Coming Chaos, A Handbook for Inner Transition by Carolyn Baker. A couple of tips as we end the show today. With this Ebola scare and all, really kick it up on the care of the body for a strong immune system is what is needed. That comes from plenty of sunshine too, so soak it up now. Eating organic local foods, exercise, drink plenty of clean water, maybe add some herbs to strengthen the immune system like astragalus, some vitamin A, which is the vitamin that actually fights infection in the body. And vitamin C, have colloidal silver on hand, they say that that will kill the virus. But clean water is so important to our health. And there are new studies about water, and it's about structured water. Some call it the fourth phase of water. It's, It's Water is full of mystery and magic, and it's conscious, and it shares and stores information. It's really amazing. But though we can't cover it today, I suggest you research it, and perhaps next time we can talk about it. But it's the kind of water that would be beneficial for us all to be drinking at this time. Also, as part of get out in nature, there are so many wild herbs now for collecting. All the things that we call weeds, of course, are 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 herbs that have medicinal qualities. So it's a great way to get out there with your books and baskets and scissors and uh, water and have a field day. And when you get home, you can refer to making, uh, refer to the book Making Plant Medicine by Rico Cech or The Herbal Handbook by David Hoffman. And then you can create your own medicine chest and herbal tinctures and remedies and combinations of things it's really quite lovely and quite fun so well, that's it for this show i wish you a wonderful rest of august and a great rest of the day thanks for listening and remember it's only a dream it's only a dream it's only a dream it's only a dream. It's only a dream. only a dream. Thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments or consultations, please contact me at linda@prestia.com. At Thank you and blessings to all. Blessings to all. To all, to all, to all. Have a great rest of the day.
0: Revolution with host High C on Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with High C. Enjoy the show. One day one day, one
4: day, one day, one day, one day, this nation will rise. Up, rise, up, rise up, live out this meaning
2: of
4: being free. I have a dream. But one day only the red hit on the short.
1: show where you have the opportunity to call in and receive a reading live during the show um, with me. Hi And we will jump right in and go to the queue for people that are waiting. So let's go to a caller from area code 714.
9: Mm-hmm. Are you there caller? I am indeed. Hello, hello. I see.
1: Hello. Uh, what's your name and where are you calling from?
9: My name is Kazmir and I am calling from Menlo Park. Not to disclose any information about where exactly I am, but.
1: <laughs> All right. At uh, what state is that?
9: <laughs> this is in California.
1: In California. All right, I just needed to make sure we had enough information for the FBI to go on. (laughs) I kid, I kid. We're not going to disclose that. So what is it that we could look at for you today?
9: I spent a good minute, and by good minute, I mean a good minute, (laughs) thinking about what to ask um, for this chair reading. And my mind goes to a bunch of different things that I could go on forever about. So I'm thinking today would be a really good one just for a general reading um, in the direction of my current state of how, um, I guess, um, it's a transitional period um, in my life, and I guess I need guidance on how to enlighten my ways of thinking and or habits and actions in order to manifest and produce the best possible outcome for the next stage of my life to where I can keep my vibrations high as well as keep raising them and those around me.
1: Okay. So the first thing that we notice is that the first two cards that come up are in the suit of wands, which is fire, um, which shows that things may be starting to spark, that there may be a sense of illumination that is happening. We can also be starting to feel more fired up in the sense of feeling passionate, ambitious, driven, Um, just that sense of the energy seems to be kicking into high gear to want to move forward, to implement changes, to start to pursue and go after things um, and make them happen rather than remaining passive or waiting for them to happen to us or for us. Um, And the first two cards that come up are the Six of Wands and the Knight of Wands. And, you know, the, the Six of Wands, in a sense, both of these are kind of saying it's time to take charge and to be the one who is leading and guiding things in yourself and in your life rather than allowing other things and other people to to be the ones that are leading you in a direction or telling you where to go or making it happen for you. Um, Six of Wands is a really nice card to see because it is a card of success and victory. So it can show that something that we have been doing or working on is be going to be successful or has become successful. Uh, and the, the key to this is that it's a card for me that I call the Alexander the Great card because it says we have to be willing to start rallying the troops and be the one who is right out there in front leading rather than a part of the group that is following. So, And, and the Knight of Wands comes up right next to that. So there is this sense of starting to forge our own path You know, all that fire is kind of like saying I'm grabbing the torch and I'm heading into the dark and I'm just going to find my own way rather than wait for somebody else to explore the cave for me and then put up lights so that I can see where to go in the cave. Um, So it's time to start getting proactive and putting our will into action, if you want to think of it that way, that the, the time for waiting is behind us. And the time for action is now. And that we should stop thinking that there is a later time to do something. Like I'll do that tomorrow. Or I'll get to that at some other point in my life. Or I'll put that off and wait for until. Those are not phrases that we want to hear right now. Um, the reverse high priestess card shows up mm-hmm. and says that we have to be careful to not override or ignore what our intuition or our inner voice is trying to tell us. Um, It also says that here, because it comes up next to the seven of swords, it's also saying don't don't necessarily take people or things at face value because what they are presenting may not be a true or an accurate representation or reflection of who they really are or what it really has to offer. So if something doesn't feel right, trust your intuition about that rather than overriding that intuition and saying, well, maybe I'll give it a chance anyway. Maybe I'll give them a chance anyway. Because Seven of Swords really is cautioning us that people are perhaps not going to be completely honest or aren't They're kind of playing games or creating illusions to present what they want us to see rather than what they really are. Um, And so our, our intuition always knows that, and oftentimes we hear ourselves say things like, I had a bad feeling about that person. I shouldn't have trusted them with blah, blah, blah. You know, If you feel that, trust that, and act on that rather than finding yourself saying it after the fact, which can go back to like the Knight of Wands which is trust that gut instinct and get in and out of something quickly rather than letting it linger, especially if it doesn't feel like the right thing or the right person or people to be around. Um, and, and Seven of Swords is, is in the short term here, but it, and it cautions us against being surrounded by the the, the snake pit of vipers. Um so it's saying, you know, especially in the near future, really pay attention, one, to that intuition, and two, to who and what you're surrounded by, because they may be playing games or they may be things that are really good at helping to perpetuate illusion or deception, and sometimes that means they just help us to continue to deceive ourselves from facing a truth or dealing with reality, and we would want to... Perhaps step away from those things sooner rather than later otherwise we may find ourselves getting into a bit of a quandary Uh, so I, I think that that's one key thing and then the other key thing is what this started out with is we we have this moment we have this opportunity and part of that fire I think probably ties into the fact that we're both in Leo the sign of Leo, and it's and Jupiter is in Leo, which is really firing everything up and allowing us to expand and grow and take some chances in, in terms of pushing beyond our normal limits or comfort zones. And it's really time to go after something, to make something happen soon or quickly, to trust our gut and really run with it, to not overthink things, and to be more of a leader rather than a follower, especially in terms of the direction we take our own life, meaning we're the ones directing and leading where that goes rather than we follow what somebody else or something else is telling us we should do.
9: Thank you very much.
1: So hopefully that made sense. Any questions? Yes.
9: Um, Yes, the part where you were talking about I think it was the Seven of Swords. It was something um, about, you know, not fully uh, taking everything at face value for what people in like, situations are. Um, I mean, I got, like, an image that popped up into my head at that moment when you said that, but I'm not sure if I had the wrong image pop up or something or maybe if that's just the fear of, like, my ego coming in about not being able to trust this person even though I get, um, insanely good vibes and good feeling, like, um, from the person. So, I guess I just haven't known them long enough to really know for sure. But, um, I don't know, just really making me think about some things about whether or not my intuition about this person is correct of him being a good person or the fact that when he did pop up, um, in my mind if it was just a fear like from my ego about uh or i don't know i'm just not sure well really.
1: so well so what i did is i just pulled a card specifically for whoever popped up into your head and the reversed nine of pentacles came up so that would cause us some concern because nine of pentacles reversed can say that someone um how would we say this that Someone may not have the worth or value that they are presenting. Uh, Nine of Pentacles tends to be a card of someone who is very independent and self-sufficient because they have created a world that they live in, that they invite people into, but it's very much a world that is of their own creation and reflects who they are. And when it reverses, there's a sense of, it's like somebody who, uh, you know, goes to the goes to the used clothing store and gets clothes from expensive designer labels and then wears those trying and then goes and gets a car and puts themselves in debt that's a fancy schmancy car um and but they do that in order to present an image that isn't necessarily reflective of their reality or what they would really have to offer so they may say oh yeah i would love to fund your project and then you know you you give them the information you put all of your faith and trust in them you say no to other things and then they take it and do something with it or don't do anything with it because they're not able to make it happen and therefore you've missed out on other opportunities so mm. i would be i would be cautious that there may be more of a front being put on Rather than there being substance or reality behind the front or the impression or the image that they are presenting.
9: Um, May I ask one more question, possibly? Sure. Um, to say, uh, yeah, he is putting up a front, um, possibly, you know, there's always that. Um, but missing out on other opportunities, um, say if. If I were to write it out and continue working with this guy, um, would I still be able to – that would that would probably take away more energy from me being open to other opportunities and searching for newer, better things. Although, I guess I did jump at this opportunity because it was the first best thing that, I guess, popped out at me.
1: Uh, that could be the case because the reversed Fool card came up. <laughs> Uh, you know, so it could be that either it's not worth taking the chance or risk, um, but also it may just be that we don't want to, we don't want you limiting yourself.
9: Mm, yes, yes.
1: And and thinking you can't take advantage of other opportunities or other things um, because this here we would be concerned that this would be someone who is like trying to to lock you in. It's like the person who says, well, if you're going to work with me, you can't work with anybody else because they are going to taint the information, they are going to get in the way. But it's 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 that idea of trying to present this image that they're they're the end all be all in everything. They may even actively try to convince you not to pursue or work with other people or other things.
9: All right. Wow. Um, very great reading. Um, very shed some light on my situation. Thank you for that. Very much.
1: You are more than welcome. Thanks for calling in. Mhm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's going to bring us to a close for the show today and i want to thank everyone for listening i want to thank my guests author katie keenan whose book the obsidian mirror just was released and archaeologist megan kane and thank you to everyone for joining the show and listening every month you can always like the show or comment about the show on facebook at our facebook page facebook.com slash revolution with high c if you were ever interested in contacting me personally Uh, with a question or to talk about having a a private reading, feel free to send me an email, hi-c at dot net, And I would invite you to listen to the other show that I do, which will be airing this coming Tuesday, uh, August 12th at 8 p.m. Pacific, that I co-host with Charlie Harrington, and that show is called The Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist. And we have a very interesting guest um, Yoav Bendov from Israel, and he is talking about how he works with the Tarot, specifically the Tarot de Marseille, uh, and uh, therapy cards, which is also another very interesting technique um, of using images as a therapeutic process, uh, especially in groups, but sometimes with individuals. But it's a very interesting, and it's also interesting just to hear the approaches and perspectives. Uh, that people have with these kind of things from other cultures, from other parts of the world. So I encourage you to uh, tune in and listen to that. Um, that will air here on Blog Talk Radio, Tuesday, August 12th at 8 p.m., the Amethyst Historical. So until next time, I wish you blessings and surprises around every corner. And I will look forward to having you join me here again in September, the second Sunday of the month, which I believe is September 14th, for Revolution with hi
0: Thank you for joining us. Revolution with host Hi-See brought to you by Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with high C. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows LIVE for Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist with High C Lutmers and Charlie Harrington, Tuesday evening at 8 p.m.